Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive. Summer may have ended, but the VA hopes to stay on top of the rising amount of heat-related illnesses. Plus, an update on the Small Business Administration's role in the Maui Fires recovery effort. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the recent advances in generative artificial intelligence have sparked concerns about the safety of AI. The National Security Agency is now setting up a new organization dedicated to securing AI technologies from U.S. adversaries. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. Justin, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I'm good. I'm good. So why don't you tell us more about this new AI center? Yeah, the NSA is establishing something called the Artificial Intelligence Security Center. It's going to be housed at the agency's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center, which is actually a kind of public-facing entity of sorts. It's outside the gates of the NSA headquarters, and it actually is where the NSA does a lot of unclassified work with industry. And so along those same lines, this AI security center will be working with industry, national labs, and academia on securing AI. NSA Director General Paul Nakasone broke that news during an event at the National Press Club last week. Here's what he had to say about where the U.S. is with AI and why they're setting up this center. Today, the U.S. leads in this critical area, but this lead should not be taken for granted. Our adversaries, who have for decades used theft and exploitation of our intellectual property to advance their interests, will seek to co-op our advances in AI and corrupt our application of it. That's the head of the NSA, General Paul Nakasone there. So what does the NSA mean by AI security? Yeah, it's it's kind of similar to cybersecurity, but there are a, a few key differences. I mean, the similarities are that the NSA here wants to leverage what they know about foreign intelligence uh, in terms of, you know, what how they might be uh, attacking key AI systems. They want to contribute to the development of best practices, principles, guidelines, things like that for AI security. And they want to ultimately promote the secure use of AI within both classified systems and more broadly across the defense industrial base, which is where the NSA has some security responsibilities. But, you know, there's, there's a few differences in terms of, you know, how AI is, is as you know, a little bit autonomous and, and can act on its own in certain cases. Here's what Nakasone said about AI security. AI security is about protecting AI systems from learning, doing and revealing the wrong thing. It is a set of practices to protect AI systems and life cycles from digital attacks, theft, and damage. We must build a robust understanding of AI vulnerabilities, foreign intelligence threats to these AI systems, and ways to encounter the threat in order to have AI security. And once again, that's NSA Director General Paul Nakasone speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So, Justin, how does this fit into the broader trends when it comes to the government's adoption of AI? Yeah, as you can imagine, you know, agency leaders have been grappling with these rapid advancements that have happened uh, publicly with, with, you know, chat GPT, especially intelligence agencies. They're kind of considering their knowledge based agencies. They're considering how these different things are going to affect their missions. And, and, you know, more generally, agencies are really looking at how to 
you know, quote unquote, harness AI, how to quickly move out in this space. A lot of them are setting up chief AI officer organizations. So it's a lot of there's a lot of focus on the speed of adoption right now. This NSA center is is actually really one of the first dedicated organizations we've seen established to look at the security piece of AI in governments. And, uh, you know, there are other organizations that are, of course, focused on that. NIST, CISA, but this NSA center is is really going to be a, a focal point, at least from the national security side when it comes to securing AI. AI is definitely the hottest trend right now with government technology, but this can't be the only new technology development that NSA is working on. What else are they looking to develop? Yeah, there's another interesting development last month. The NSA is establishing uh, what it calls an innovation pipeline focused specifically on the competition with China and, and solving some of the NSA's most pressing challenges there. It's something that's still under development. The NSA's assistant deputy director for China said that industry can probably will probably hear more about it in the coming months and into the new year. It might become a little bit more fully baked. But this is really focused on, you know, technology and China within the NSA. And of course, the the NSA has, as with a lot of other agencies, have been focused on China uh, specifically lately. Last year, the NSA created a China uh, outcomes group that looked at ways that the NSA could really look at that competition with China and, and focus its resources. And this is just another outcome here is now there's going to be this innovation pipeline of sorts to focus on kind of technology and the technological aspect of the China competition. Well, it's going to need industry help probably to make it successful. So how does the NSA want to work with the technology sector to accomplish that goal? Yeah, the the NSA is definitely uh, trying to open up a little bit more, I think, when it comes to working uh, with industry. David Frederick, he's the deputy assistant director for China at the NSA. He says that, you know, DOD broadly has been really working uh, in the innovation space to to get closer with startups and small businesses through things like the Defense Innovation Unit. But he acknowledged that it's often difficult for smaller and medium-sized businesses to work with DOD and the NSA. Here's what he said about that. What I would like to see is more early engagement about overarching requirements. And when I say requirements, I don't mean specifications, but broad challenge problems. What are some of the innovation challenge problems? I think that's uh, you know something that DOD could and NSA could improve upon is how do we communicate about our strategic gaps in a way that helps small companies and medium-sized companies think about ways to plug in and bring value. And again, that's David Frederick, Deputy Assistant Director for China at the NSA. All righty. Well, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thank you so much for your coverage on this. All right. Thank you, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's writing written by him, not a robot, at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, an update on the Small Business Administration's role in the Maui Fires recovery effort. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. We all saw the devastation from the wildfires in Maui toward the end of the summer. 
Obviously, several federal agencies sprung into action for rescue and recovery efforts. One particular agency many may not know plays a big role in helping people put their lives back together. The Small Business Administration is currently in the process of giving out millions in disaster assistance loans for those impacted by the Maui wildfires. To get an update on that effort, I talked to Francisco Sanchez Jr., who is Associate Administrator in SBA's Office of Disaster Recovery and Resilience. Administrator Guzman had the opportunity to join the FEMA administrator just a couple of days after the disaster declaration. And what we saw on the ground was that this was going to be a whole of community effort and a whole of federal family approach to get it on the road to recovery. The damage was certainly catastrophic. It's still early in terms of what the residents of Maui need to be doing to recover. So we've been on the ground since and our commitments to be there as long as it takes. And as far as commitment goes, when it comes to a financial standpoint, what has SBA assistance gotten up to? You know, the most recent figure I see was around $40 million. Are we, are we still around there, or is it probably going to go up? As of this morning, the SBA has approved more than $106 million to disaster survivors on the ground in Maui. We continue to take applications, continue to do outreach to make sure that people are aware that we are there as a resource. And SBA is uniquely positioned as the only federal agency that to this scale and scope can help renters, businesses, homeowners, and private nonprofits. So across Hawaii, we're helping to bring the disaster relief, not only in long-term lending, but for the first time ever, aggressively bringing a whole of SBA approach to make sure that beyond lending, uh, other resources in this agency are being made available to the disaster survivors in Maui. I've never been there, but just looking at the footage that I saw and reading about it, it didn't seem like it was a very conglomerized area. It seemed like a lot of people were making a living, you know, whether it was being a diving instructor or like you said, just renting out a house because it's in such a beautiful area. Is that what you gathered in your investigations? It is. It was also my first time ever to be on Maui. And so it was a great learning opportunity in terms of the culture and looking beyond the extensive data that we have done to make sure that we can refine our programs to meet disaster survivors. Being on the ground gives you such an incredible context. The vast majority of folks on the island are somehow tied to tourism for the economy. So having uh, met with local officials, disaster survivors, the administrator herself went to a shelter to connect with disaster survivors directly. And when we heard loud and clear was tourism is such a critical part of the economy that we need to deliver on that. It's not just important for those businesses, but, you know, as you know, 50% of employees across this country are tied back to a small business. And so, for example, one of the things Administrator Guzman did was a very first ever approach. We quickly changed some rulemaking to ensure that all of Hawaii could apply for economic injury disaster lending. That is, if you are a business, for example, that you did not suffer physical damage, but you're seeing a downturn in your business because of the tourism dip, is that they could apply for economic injury. And that's critically important because those employees are of Hawaii, from Maui, and we want to make sure that they get disaster relief if they were impacted personally. Uh, but we also don't want to see added consequences for that community uh, if they start losing their jobs and those kinds of things that would happen if businesses didn't have the resources they needed to stay open. I was wondering if you could expand on that data gathering point that you mentioned, other than folks you know, coming to you with applications and telling you exactly what happened to them, what other mechanisms are at SBA's disposal for finding folks who may not even know that they qualify for SBA assistance? One, doing a lot of education. In terms of data, we have a very good sense of where the damage happened, where the damage was physically, not only in Lahaina, which is obviously the most devastated, that historic part of the island, but also other parts of the community that may have seen physical damage. And so they're working very closely to see what is the best way to approach disaster survivors 
where they might be housed, being able to go working with the American Red Cross and local officials to be able to provide that information, be respectful of people's locations right now as they may be in non-congregate shelters, they may be elsewhere, but making sure that they get that information. And also uh, through our data analysis, looking at the businesses on Maui and other parts of the island that may have been impacted. So we are targeting to make sure that those folks that unfortunately may have lost family members, but also lost their property, that we do targeted outreach to them. And then for businesses that we do that in a culturally appropriate way as well, to make sure that they know that even if they didn't have physical damage, they can come to SBA for that. And one thing that the administrator did just a week and a half ago was to host a listening session with community leaders, business leaders, civic leaders in Maui to hear directly from them what they saw as the challenges were, and not simply go in and saying, here's what we can deliver, but saying, what do you need? And then coming back and looking at our programs very extensively and to see how we can bring a whole of government approach to make sure that we're delivering on the president's promise to the people of Maui and the administrator Guzman's direction to bring the whole of SBA to the ground to help people recover. What can you tell me about a business recovery center? Who's involved in it and what does it include? A business recovery center is basically a one-stop shop where people can come and connect with the Small Business Administration to see what we have available. You know, one of the things that people know us most for is low interest, long-term disaster lending to give businesses, homeowners, renters, and private nonprofits the capital they need to be able to, one, repair the damage and rebuild, but also mitigate and be able to recover economically. But when they come to a center, we will help them with their application. We will do some education about the program. And now, thanks to the whole of SBA approach that the administrator has directed us to do, connecting them with other programs. So if you came in for a loan and you got it, we'll certainly expedite that for you, but we'll also connect you with other SBA resources. So we're not just doing lending. How do we get your business in the queue for uh, for government contracting? How do we connect you with mentors and other resource partners to help make sure that not only you rebuild in a mitigated way, but what can we do to make sure that your business is more resilient by its processes and, and how it continues to do business in the future? And that said, uh, if you come and decide you don't want a loan, in your business, we're still going to connect you with those other SBA resources to make sure that we can help disaster survivors in the way that they need those resources. This one is kind of a curiosity question. You know, it's been a harrowing past five years for small businesses. And then, you know, something disastrous like this happens. Have there been any lessons learned that SBA has garnered from small business assistance loans that they've given in the past two or three years that are going to be applied to this effort and future efforts? SBA learned a lot from the COVID response and the work that SBA has been doing on the ground for years now when it comes to disasters. And some of those are already in play. Administrator Guzman issued a historic change to our policy. As a result of COVID, for example, we, we learned that people needed a little bit more breathing room. They were already paying off some other loans, the resources rebounding from the COVID economy. So now, and this came a permanent just a couple of days before the wildfire in Maui. Now, if you get an SBA loan, your first payment is deferred for 12 months and zero interest. So if you're a business owner, that gives you a lot of room to get the capital that you need today to start your recovery process, but you don't have to worry about that first payment and you don't accrue interest for an entire year to help you with those capital access issues. And the same goes for homeowners as well. This is especially important in Maui where the recovery is gonna be a long time. You saw that community that was so severely impacted and those buildings no longer there. They're gonna need some time. And so that low interest, uh, long-term loan, that deferment for 12 months with zero interest is critical. Uh, we've also learned the chronic stressors that businesses are facing across this country, sometimes disaster after disaster after disaster. And it can be challenging out there when capital is a big issue. 
One of the things we're also doing is a reconsideration program to make sure that we are taking a real honest look for someone that may have been declined. We did this, started this in Florida. We are amping this up in Maui. So if you come to us and you're declined for an SBA loan for your business, we will connect with you and tell you why. And with partners on the ground, we will have those resource partners walk you through the process and try to get you to a yes. And some of those are just some of the things that happened during disaster. Middlings and Bergdown, you may have had your paperwork. You may have had your records. And so what we're doing now, rather than declining you just because of that, we're going to connect you with your resource partner. It could be a local partner, a state partner, our federal partners across the federal family, helping you find that paperwork, helping you get that in so we can have a successful application for you. Francisco Sanchez Jr. is Associate Administrator in the Small Business Administration's Office of Disaster Recovery and Resilience. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, how service members can get the most out of their pay. But first, summer may have ended, but the VA hopes to stay on top of the rising amount of heat-related illnesses. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Veterans may not be the only ones suffering heat-related illnesses from rising temps around the nation, but the Veterans Affairs Department nonetheless wants to make sure it addresses the increasing number of HRI cases that it's seeing at its facilities. Recently, the agency has published an assessment that shows 18 years' worth of HRI-related data among veterans. To get a breakdown of what trends the agency found and what it's doing to address them, I spoke to Thomas Osborne, director of VA's National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation. You know, the VA is a big place. The VA is the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States, and there's a lot of efforts People all over the institution working hard to provide the best care possible for our patients, our veterans. One of the things that we did early on was recognize that climate and heat are important and potentially very important for our patients' health. There was quite a few different publications out before that suggested that older patients and those with multiple comorbidities and other things could be at higher risk for bad outcomes from heat and environmental changes. So we looked to try to better understand what that would mean for our patient population, and we couldn't find anything that was already written. So our team decided to do our investigation with our own data and resources, and we collaborated with some great people at the CDC, and they brought their knowledge and expertise And we utilized our data to understand what was going on. And we recently just published a pretty impactful, probably the largest paper, peer-reviewed academic paper on the topic and a lot of really interesting insights that are designed to be used to help inform and to use data and make data-informed decisions about how to best mitigate the risks. Yeah. Can you tell me about just a few of those top-level insights that you all found pertaining to how the heat is affecting uh, the patients of the VA veterans in particular? So this manuscript, this paper was, uh, I think, pretty interesting in a lot of ways. First of all, we looked at 18 years of historical data. So the VA does a really good job at keeping track of our patients' records and data in our electronic health record. And it's a really robust resource. And so we looked back 18 years at the trends and we tried to understand the risks and the variables which were important. And some of the things that we sort of expected and we were thinking might be the case, but we were able to quantify it. And other things that we found were, to me, quite surprising. 
And so some of the things that we expected was that, you know, some people would be more at risk for heat-related illness than others. And in particular, we found that those who have multiple comorbidities in particular and some demographic groups were at more risk for heat-related illness than others. Some of the things that we were kind of surprised about was that the trends across the country, because we looked at uh, areas of the country that had different proportions of heat-related illnesses, and the trends across the country were a little surprising. Uh, One is that the trends over the 18 years that we looked at were steadily going up, just about every state everywhere. Some states, the trends showed that the heat-related illnesses were increasing more than others. And we kind of expected that, you know, when we first looked at it, the, the trends would show that people who are living more in more southern states were going to have more cases of heat-related illnesses than people in northern states because of just the climatic zones. But we found that that was not necessarily true, and that surprised us. And what we think is going on is some traditionally warmer states are already sort of addressing the issue with you know, education programs and outreach programs and mitigation plans where maybe some of the states in the northern climates are perhaps less used to or less expecting climate to be affecting people in the way that it's been in the last decade or so. And the increase over time, I think, is possibly getting people off guard. Because, you know, like if you live, you know, maybe in Maine or a different, you know, northern state, you may not have an air conditioner, you know, but maybe if you live down in Florida, you do have an air conditioner. So there's different things based on where you typically, you know, built a house back in the day with insulation for different things that you may be ready for, maybe not ready for. And so that was a big surprise. The other surprise that I was not expecting, and I don't think we were expecting either, is when we looked at our homeless population, we were expecting that they would be more impacted just because, you know, of the increased exposure that you would have if you don't have a roof. And so what we did is we looked at that and and it was increasing steadily over time. But in the last half of our assessment, it actually decreased. So if you look at the graph, it almost looks like a peak where it was steadily going up. And then over the last half of the assessment period, it went down. And what it seems to be going on is right around that time, the VA was expanding and developing and deploying a number of homeless outreach and mitigation programs. And those two things coincided pretty closely. So in all of this, there's some hope that, you know, there are things that we can do to prevent the consequences of extreme heat in the environment and in particular how it relates to health. Getting down on the ground of actually treating patients, what is it that more facilities are seeing? Is it just, you know, the basics of heat exhaustion and dehydration and obviously irritating any current conditions they already have? Are there any challenges to treating other patients compared to ones who might need a little bit more care like the more vulnerable homeless population? Yeah, that's a really great and a pretty pretty deep question on a lot of levels. We could, There's a lot to unpack there. So for sure, there are so many different variables that we looked at. And what we really were focused in on, on this particular assessment, we've got others in the works, is the admissions. You know, why people are coming into the hospital when in particular, what are the ICD-10 codes and ICD-9 codes, which is sort of the classification code for different diseases? What are those codes 
being marked as when someone comes into the hospital. And what we did see is these codes that are specifically for heat, like heat exhaustion, like you said, those have been going up over time. Now, that's kind of an important thing because just looking at that data, you're going to have some missing information because if you come into the hospital and you have a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, that is likely what you're going to be coded for. But that heart attack or stroke could have happened or could have been exacerbated by heat. And in that case, you may not have coded somebody for heat-related illness and heart attack. And sometimes you just, you know, would code them for heart attack. So there's likely missing data. You know, a lot of research has suggested, and our data also suggests that the incidence is much more than what we actually accounted for. We took a conservative approach and just looking at the cases or the times people came to the hospital with a specific diagnostic code that said heat-related illness, but there's probably much more because people come into the hospital for a variety of reasons. And sometimes they have other illnesses that are exacerbated because of the heat. Yeah, with so many of those vulnerabilities that you have to take into consideration, you know, top level from a policymaking standpoint, what can you use this data for in formulating a way to prepare facilities possibly for more heat related illnesses? Are there, you know, say, hey, you know, there's a heat wave coming, you know, maybe be ready for more of those, you know, older folks coming in with heart conditions or things of that nature? Is that kind of what the data might be utilized for? That's a, yeah, for sure. That's a great question. So that's very much, I appreciate that question because that's very much our intent is to understand the challenge, understand what's going on objectively. And then with that information to use that to make data informed decisions about how to mitigate those risks. And in particular, it would also be fantastic, like you suggested, is to have some sort of predictive model where you know you know somebody's background or you know a particular background that someone could fit into and if the temperature hits a certain threshold that puts that particular person or type of population at risk then we know that there's a flag that there's a threshold that we should understand so then we can reach out to those folks and try to avert a crisis you know and some things that you can do you know there's a lot of things you can do i mean education you know can happen anytime but also, you know, there's cooling centers. A lot of different areas have cooling centers. But if you don't have a cooling center, then maybe someone can come to the hospital and, you know, just hang out there. Or maybe, you know, if you can't make it to the hospital and go to malls and things like that. But overall, the big picture that you really mentioned, I think, is super important is how are we as a country going to address this? Because, you know, no one is immune from the ill effects of heat, no matter, you know, who you are, young or old. And this is not just a, an issue for the VA, although our patient population tends to be older and has more comorbidities, so at particular risk. But, you know, heat-related illnesses, like you're suggesting, can happen to anybody. And so the insights that we have at VA can help others better inform what to do. And so I've been part of this group, which is the NIHIS, the National Integrated Heat and Health Information System, for quite a few years and that's where I am right now. I'm, I'm in a side conference room because we have this interagency working group and working on our strategic, our federal heat strategic plan with 23 different agencies. So I just popped out in, so that, I apologize if there's background echo in this side room, but that's exactly what we're doing is what you're suggesting is to come together as a country with many different agencies 
with different perspectives to try to understand how we can work well together to be successful, but also get the perspectives of different agencies so we can do this in a holistic way so our country can be as prosperous and healthy as possible. Thomas Osborne is director of Veterans Affairs National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation. You can find this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Stay cool with the Federal Drive by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, how service members can get the most out of their pay. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Recent analysis from the Congressional Budget Office found that on average, enlisted personnel receive cash compensation that is higher than that received by about 90% of civilians of the same age and education. So what's the best way to capitalize on that? My next guest hopes to answer that very question. Trevor Nolan is the author of the new book, Military Money, How to Thrive on a Government Salary, and a retired service member himself. Well, the starting question really is uh, pretty easy for me. How do you thrive on a government salary? (laughs) It's a great question, and it's one that I would tell you has different answers depending on what career field you get and who your supervisors are as you are going through the military. You're only really going to be exposed and as smart financially as those that are surrounding you. And I had a very lucky and blessed path along that way where I had a lot of great mentors that really infused me with a lot of information. So how do you thrive on a government salary? You surround yourself with people and leaders and members, uh, cohort, whether that's, uh, you know, contemporaries of the same rank and grade, uh, or even folks that are junior to you that you see or that emulate positive financial decisions and that are just in a place where you want to be and you surround yourself with them and then you become part of their group. Let's start with the big one. Um, and it's a frustration that I hear from you know veterans that I know personally and uh, that I've spoken to through this job. And that is, you know, it's it's kind of hard to set down roots. You're all over the place and, you know, finding a, a good house for yourself where, you know, you're going to be there for the next, you know, even five years or so. That can be tough to build wealth when you don't exactly know where you're going to be in five years. Uh, what do you have as far as suggestions for those coming out of the military and looking for just a place to call? home? That's an absolutely great question. And this is what I get to in the book. Although it seems that that is a disadvantage as you are moving from installation to installation, as long as you choose to serve, I almost flip that and look at the inverse and look at the opportunity that you have to be exposed to different markets. And you're going to get paid every two weeks with a at least a cost of living adjustment of some sort on the first of every year and pretty well assured promotions on the enlisted side, at least up through, I would say, E5, E6, E7, and on the officer side, 04, 05. And what that means is you can accept a little bit greater risk than your civilian counterparts that are honestly, they're shopping from job to job. They don't know what their annual salary is going to be in 12 months because of the massive amount of turnover that we're seeing in the civilian job force and the civilian industry. So because you have the opportunity of assured income and increased income from year to year, you have some opportunities to grow and build wealth by accepting a little bit greater risk. Now, how are some specific ways that you can do that? 
to your point, Eric, there are some places where you can get stationed that are less than desirable. And when you're in that situation, some ways that you may want to look at growing some wealth would be to maybe grab an even nicer house than you would ever be able to afford for yourself and grab some roommates and celebrate it that way. Let's talk about the active duty folks. What is the best way to make sure that you're financially sound if and when you are deployed overseas? What do you have to make sure is solid back home? You know, I know there are a million variables that go into that, whether you have a family or not, but just some of the basics that you can give me. Absolutely. Great question. I was deployed six times, all of those to the Middle East, and then I did a number of overseas short and long tour assignments. So you're speaking right to my heart when you bring up this question. If you are single and you have no dependents, you should absolutely minimize or eliminate all liabilities that you are paying for back in the States. What do I mean by that? If you're going to be gone longer than about 90 days, you probably need to consider, even though it's a pain, putting your stuff in storage and pocketing all your housing allowance. That's how I was able to pay off my student loan, for example, or move a renter in behind. If you have the note in your name, you know, you're a, a homeowner getting renters in there that offset your liabilities back in the States. Same thing with vehicles. You know, I served, you know, I'm in the nine 11 generation, right? I started just a few months before nine 11 and I was at war the entire time I was on active duty. So with that, there are some, things that really kind of bubble to the surface as opportunities. One other group I, I wanted to address is, you know, the folks that are getting ready to, you know, they've served their time, they're on their way out of the military. What's the best way to shore up that you've got a solid financial footing once you exit the military and are looking to retire, whether you're going to go into another opportunity or take it easy a little bit? Aha. Uh -huh. About two years out, and I'm not joking when I say that, two years out from the time that you want to separate or retire from active duty, you need to take a look at all of the benefits. And remember, you're going to transition from the Department of Defense to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So with that, there are a lot of benefits. One of those is education. A lot of people, and in my book, uh, I even wrote, don't give your GI Bill to your kids. But I have since backed away from that. You know, I have gone back to school because I didn't give my GI Bill to any, any dependents. And it provides you a tax-free housing allowance, right? And that can really take the, a lot of pressure off of you know the liability column as you go to retire. But let's back up. So two years ahead of time, you wanna make sure that your monthly liabilities can be 100% met by at minimum, you know your retirement pay, what you're expecting out of your retirement. That puts you in the absolute best situation, meaning you can celebrate actual freedom. You don't have to go and get a paycheck in two weeks because you know that your bills, whether that is mortgage, childcare, uh, gas, utilities, whatever that is, is covered at minimum uh, by your retirement check um, or in the case of separating by the assets that you've accumulated while you're on active duty. That puts you in the absolute best because then you can really go chase your life's fulfillment dream, whatever that is. You know, and you can do it. And I, I wrote some silly ones in the book, but I mean, if you want to be a very underpaid coach of your children's soccer team, well, you can go do that because all of your basic necessities are taken care of. And it takes about two years to put those things in order. So I would say that that's probably the best thing is minimize your liabilities to the point where whatever your asset category is, whether that is your retirement pay, VA disability, or GI bill housing allowance, that all your bills are covered 
from those totals so that you can go do whatever you want. Because ultimately, the most wealth that you're going to carry into civilianhood after the military is your health and your freedom. And if and if you can uh, make sure that the money doesn't become a problem, then you can really transcend it and become whatever you're called to be on this side of the uniform. That's really great. Final question, and it's probably a topic that you don't address in the book, but I just have to ask it just because based on the news on the day, um, with all the shutdown talk and things of that nature, you know, troops pay is usually used as a political football to try and guilt the party that they feel like is holding out to you know make sure that there's funding for our troops, you know, serving overseas and here. I just would like to get your two cents on what that would mean financially for somebody going through a potential shutdown that maybe troops aren't getting paid when they think they are? So it's a great question. And I w- went through the shutdown in 2014 and there was a lot of pay delay. And I will tell you that it also takes a lot beyond the military service member to run the military. So I'm really talking about those Department of Defense, Department of Air Force, Navy, Army, whatever civilians, and they won't come to work, right? And and it takes a ton of them to make the big machine work. So we're not just talking about the effects of, I mean, it's catastrophic. I mean, when I was on active duty, I would do some of these war games overseas and I would be constantly worried when I see that like some non-kinetic targets of potential adversaries would be like DFAS, for example. And I know I'm using a lot of uh, acronyms, but so the military pay system, as you can imagine, would be a very high payoff target if you were an adversary of the United States. If you could eliminate the military's ability to get paid, especially for our junior enlisted folks, they're a paycheck away in some cases from not eating. So I do a lot of work in my nonprofit life specifically to food in, uh, food insecurity and trying to eliminate food insecurity for active duty military here in the Colorado Springs region. This is near and dear to my heart. I know how many folks are on food subsistence and how many folks don't make a basic living wage when they have a couple of small kids in their young 20s. So this hits right right at home for me. It is a terrible situation to use military pay as leverage. And I was just in Washington, D.C. last week working with members of the Colorado delegation, and they all are in, you know, depending, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on, they're all in 100% agreement that we should never, we should never, and we should never use military pay as a political bargaining chip. We do so much more damage than good when we shut down our, our federal government. You know, one of the best things about the Department of Defense is that we have civilian leadership, elected leadership that that serves in those roles of, you know, commander in chief, secretary of defense. But when they aren't given the opportunity or when the opportunity is being taken away by a very small group to do their job that they have been elected to do when it comes to defending our nation, it's just wrong, man. I mean, it, it, it hurts my heart. And there are there's a chapter on all of the resources that are available you, if you're a uniformed military member, you will never, you should never, and you will never go without pay. You just have to reach out. And there are a ton of aid organizations and nonprofits that will get put money in your hand same day. Many of those in the form of a grant, some in the form of very low or no interest loans, so that you don't ever get put in a terrible situation by our nation that relies on you. Trevor Nolan is the author of the new book, Military Money, How to Thrive on a Government Salary. You can find this interview along with a link to get a free copy of the book at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. The Air Force was at the finish line, about to award a $5 billion cybersecurity contract and pulled the plug. 
The decision left hundreds of vendors frustrated, disappointed, and out hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in proposal costs. In his reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the Air Force's reason for ending this 18-month acquisition effort may surprise you. Jason joins me now to discuss. Jason, how are we doing today? I'm good. I'm good. This is a great story, Eric. I mean, this is a fascinating uh, look into government contracting. Yeah, and it seems as if nobody really had an answer for us at first. So why did the Air Force decide to cancel this cybersecurity solicitation just like that? It surprises, I think, everyone involved in the enterprise cyber capabilities, the EC2 acquisition, potentially a $5 billion multiple award, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. They've been going on. They did all the industry days. They did RFIs. They did pre-solicitation, they, they met with vendors, they, they did all this work, and they were actually just posted something on Sam.gov that said, we're going to make an award soon, and then there goes the rug right out from under uh, the, the all these vendors who bid on it. And the reason why, Eric, too many vendors bid on the procurement. And and, and all the years of, of me covering federal procurement, and I talked to a lot of federal procurement experts, former acquisition experts at VA, at GSA, uh, you know, within the Homeland Security Department, and they all were surprised because they had too many bidders, 250 more or more bidders, uh, Air Force said. And many times you hear about procurements being canceled because of a lack of competition. You know, they were asking for something so arcane, arcane that nobody bid on it or they only had one bidder and they wanted more competition. They canceled contracts because industries come back to them and said, this is not a good path. Don't do it. You know, you will not be successful. And they've terminated acquisition efforts for, you know, an assortment of other reasons, lack of funding, a change in direction. It just too many protests, but never, never I've heard for too much interest. You talked about those points of how strange it is for those covering it and those in the industry. But how unusual is it for the Air Force to actually do something like this where they just cancel a contract because there's too much interest? Yeah, I think I think that uh, that's what really stood out to me when I talked to, for instance, Mike Smith, a former strategic uh, sourcing director at Homeland Security, now executive at GovCon RX. He says it just comes back to not enough market research. You have to understand what the industry can support, what the vendors are interested in. And when you have a five billion dollar enterprise cybersecurity capabilities type of contract that you're looking for, you know, all the pieces and parts of cybersecurity you got to understand that there's going to be a lot of interest. And if you're going to have a lot of interest, how do you kind of put together a solicitation uh, through your market research to understand who, what, when, how, why, all those you know basic things? And it just seemed to him, again, he was not involved in it. He didn't bid on it. He wasn't on any team. He didn't consult on it. He goes, it just seems like the market research just failed them. And, and that's really why this was so surprising, because the Air Force is not new to market research, right? This is not something that that, oh, we've never done a big solicitation before. So I guess this is why it's surprising. And the other piece of this is, and I talked to Jim Williams, a former executive at GSA, at IRS, at Homeland Security, and he said the same thing. Market research among agencies actually is getting a lot better. They're really much smarter about it. You're seeing things like reverse industry days. You're seeing things like a GSA has launched a market research as a service tool, and they've had over 3,000 requests for information go through this. Uh, and, and their top user of the market research as a service, guess who it is, Eric? Who? Tell me. The Air Force. Come on. Uh, it was an easy one for you. So, again, this is why it's so unusual for them to have, have struggled with this. And so what you're saying is that the agencies over the years have been using this market research to narrow their focus on what exactly they need out of a contract. And maybe the Air Force skipped that step this time around? 
or they didn't ask the right questions or they didn't go far enough in it. Uh, you know, I talked to one former Air Force executive uh, who requested anonymity, and, and what th- they told me was the Air Force probably and, and did not conduct these one-on-one sessions with vendors. You can't conduct 250 one-on-one sessions, but you could conduct a certain number with large companies, a certain number with small companies, really get the feeling of how excited they are, how they would bid this, how this would come about, uh, really talk to them about their acquisition strategy. And, and that's where this one person that I spoke with said they believe the Air Force fell flat. Uh, the, the other folks I've talked to said, you know, when you do industry days, those are really important, but it's really a one-way conversation. Contractors don't stand up and go, I will bid this this way and you know, explain their whole strategy. So it's really they're listening and they're taking in. And I think that's where the Air Force may have fallen short is not enough research, not enough understanding of how industry sees such a huge opportunity. Again, $5 billion IDIQ type contract doesn't mean they will spend $5 billion, but a ceiling of $5 billion, there's always going to be a lot of interest in a big uh, contract like this. We're speaking with Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. And what about those vendors who spent all the time and money you know, trying to make this bid? And will it make some wary about working with the Air Force in the future, potentially? That's a really good, great question because it's unclear, but it is disappointing about the fact that there are 18 months into this and again, almost to the finish line and then they cancel it. Eric, I was told that this costs, you know, small vendors anywhere from a quarter of a million dollars to a third of a million dollars. And this could have cost large vendors more than a million dollars worth of bid and proposal costs. Now remember, this is time, energy, focus. If you're focusing on this EC2 contract, you're not focusing on something else. So there's an opportunity cost loss. I think there's there's a huge frustration all around. And and listen, at the same time, the folks I've talked to do give Air Force credit. Their combat command, which was running this acquisition for the Air Force, they made a hard decision. They could have gone forward they could have said, well, we're already, you know, 99% there. Let's just go to 100%. So they do give them credit for deciding that in the end, their acquisition strategy was problematic. And I did get some comments from the ACC. And one of the things they told me was, we did look at other options. We did say, okay, what else could we have done? And in the end, other evaluation methodologies, redefining what they call qualified offers, all of that would have been too big of a change, too substantial of a change to the EC2 solicitation. And really, they just felt like the only option they had was to cancel it. All right. So wiping the slate clean, where do we go from here? Obviously, the Air Force has a need for those cyber capabilities. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put the contract out there in the first place. So what is their plan going forward? They're relooking at their strategy. The Air Combat Command spokesperson said they're going to analyze how to meet these cybersecurity needs. Could they go back with another EC2 Part 2 type contract? And in the meantime, they're going to go out with individual needs, either, again, uh, full and open competition on SAM.gov. They may look at the GSA schedules or other GSA contracts like Alliant 2, and then other multiple ward vehicles that the Department of Defense or the Air Force currently run. So, uh, you know, again, credit to them for understanding the needs. But again, they're already 18 months behind on people waiting to use this contract. Did folks in the Air Force say, well, I'll hold off putting the solicitation out until EC2 is awarded? And then, okay, now we're using older technology. So there's a whole kind of trickle-down effect that I think there's a big concern from folks I talked to. And Eric, if I could just add one more kind of aside, a, a this is really epitomizes the bigger challenge across government. The proliferation of IDIQ, multi-reward contracts for what I'll call common IT or professional services. 
not that what Air Force was asking for was quote unquote, you know, help desk services or tech refresh. But uh, as you saw, a lot of people provide cybersecurity services and the, the, the agencies are not having to justify the need for these multiple award big contracts when they could use, again, what you heard the Air Force say, existing contracts like GSA schedules, like uh, Alliant 2, like Department of Defense and other Air Force, uh, you know, current vehicles. And without leadership, you know, pro, you know uh, political leadership from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, I think this is why this proliferation is such a problem. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, until our next surprise. All right, Eric, thank you very much. And you can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin.